are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light, to the purveyors of pictures, to all of you listening from around the world, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. No clapping today because I am doing another pod from home. Uh, Brandon and I could not coordinate our schedules this week. I got super busy, he got super busy, but we do not want to leave you all hanging, so I'm going to do a podcast today. Why not? My week has been insanely busy. Uh, If you're a regular listener of this pod, my house got destroyed by hail, so did my car. Somehow, through a miracle, my window on my car did not get busted up. However, as soon as I'm done recording this pod, I do have to take my brand new car in to uh, look at the body because... It looks like somebody took a baseball bat to it uh, with nice, precise hits. And so I'm not, I'm not super thrilled about that. But the, the home stuff, I just got my roof done about a year ago. And now I'm going to have to get my roof done again. It's kind of crazy seeing all this uh, spring weather in the middle of fall. Uh, I'm not going to get into my thoughts on climate change and all that. But uh, you can probably guess where I land on that side of the issue because I'm not thrilled about all the damage it's doing to my house. Today's sponsor is Cheetah Stand. If you're not familiar with Cheetah Stand, Cheetah Stand is not some conglomerate company that's located overseas. They are actual working photographers, guys who shoot weddings, you know, guys out there doing portraiture. And they're, they're just like you. They're not some company that's just out there to make a buck. They're invested in tools that help them out in the field. And if they know that it helps them out in the field, they'll know that it'll help you out in the field. And one of the cool things about Cheetah Stand, besides the fact that they make amazing stands, go check out their uh, their C-Series, by the way. So they make a C8, a C10, and a C12. And that's 8, 10, and 12 feet, respectively, uh, when you... Uh, open them up all the way, they can get super high. Uh, The legs automatically retract when you pick it up. So you just pick up the stand and the legs fold. You put the stand down, the legs go out. So it's really cool. Love those stands. If you're a running gun wedding photographer, go check out the C8. If you are doing location stuff with larger lights, go check out the C12. Awesome products. But one thing that I want to announce that they just recently did is they opened themselves up as a Godox dealer. Now, the reason why this is significant is because for the longest time, if you go into forums, people will be like, oh, buy Adorama's Flashpoint version of Godox. Don't buy Godox because there's no warranty in the United States. You have to send it off to China, yada, da, yada, da. That's no longer the case because uh, Cheetah Stand is actually a Godox certified repair facility. So if you buy your Godox lights from Cheetah Stand, who by the way are centrally located in the US in Dallas, Texas, uh, you have any issues, you can send it to Cheetah Stand and get it serviced in the US. So that's no longer a stigma around buying Godox. You can buy Godox with just as much confidence as you buy Flashpoint. 
So just something to keep in mind. Uh, I'll leave affiliate links in the description of this pod if you wanna go check out some of those new Godox lights, check out the C-Series stands, which I love. Go, go check out Cheetah Stand. They're an awesome sponsor and listener of this pod. So today's episode, what do I wanna talk about? Well, since Brandon's not here to roll his eyes when I get technical, I wanna talk about full spectrum cameras. Now you might be thinking to yourself, what is a full spectrum camera? So when you make a camera sensor, a camera sensor can see all the visible lights that we see, uh, Roy G. Biff. It can also see above and below that. Uh, I consider infrared to be below and ultraviolet to be above, but sometimes I see that flipped around. My reasoning, of course, is that uh, low frequencies I feel like are below and high frequencies are above, and red is a lower frequency and violet is a higher frequency. That's why uh, airplane uh, towers have red lights because you can see them from far distances. But anyway, cameras, when they are manufactured, can see below red and above violet, so they can see uh, infrared and ultraviolet. And that's great, but the problem is, is when sensors can see those frequencies, it interferes with the visible light. So, you know, 99.9999% of all people who buy cameras, they don't care about infrared and they don't care about ultraviolet. So because of that, manufacturers will put a filter on the super high frequency ultraviolet and the super low frequency infrared. And the reason they do that is because it improves the way visible light looks on the sensor. If you don't have that filter there, it looks kind of cloudy, the visible part of the spectrum. And so what that filter is called is a hot mirror filter. Okay. And so hot mirror filters are on all cameras that you buy. And that improves the performance of the camera seeing visible light, which is what most of not all of their customers want to see. So there's some of us out there, people like myself, who are like, that's cool. I'm bored. I want to do some fun stuff. And so what I did is I took a Fuji X-T20. Uh, as I uh, bought an XS10 and then eventually bought an X-H2, I decided that, well, I've got this X-T20. It's a cool camera. And so I sent it off to a company called Kalari Vision, and they converted it to what's called full spectrum. Now, since this is an education episode, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, I got my camera converted to infrared. Well, that could mean that they got it just converted to a specific band of infrared. It could mean that they got it converted to full spectrum, which also encompasses ultraviolet. And so when you hear somebody say they got their camera converted to infrared, it's kind of like saying, uh, hey, I have a jacuzzi, but it may not actually be the jacuzzi brand. It could be a hot tub from another company. It's just like a general term you put over uh, a, a camera that has been converted. So I wanted to make everybody hip to that. Now, what I did is I got a full spectrum camera. Now, what that allows you to do is they take off that hot mirror filter that I talked about. And so now if I just took a regular picture with the camera, it, it wouldn't look very good. So you have to control what's going on. And so uh, Kalari Vision and other companies, what you can do is uh, after they take off the hot mirror filter, you then can put drop-in filters inside the camera and they put a, mag a magnet there and you can put drop-in filters in there and then it'll control how much visible and not visible light you can see. Now, let me explain a little bit more about what I mean about visible and not visible light. So when you, uh, when you get these filters, 
they are artistic filters. And so they go in and they say, okay, well, what do we want to see? And so these companies will develop filters to produce particular looks. So for instance, if you're doing 550 or 590 nanometers, you know, now that's something you'll need to get used to if you do convert a full spectrum camera is nanometers is how everything is measured. The lower the number, the more visible light it sees and the less infrared it sees, the higher the number, the less visible light it sees and the deeper and more infrared it sees. And so photographers such as myself will buy multiple filters to achieve multiple things. Now I'm going to go ahead and have some reference material in this episode so you can understand what I'm talking about. Uh, but before I get started on that, why do people get their stuff converted to infrared? So what started my fascination with all of this was back in college, I studied geography, specifically cartography, principles of remote sensing, satellite image interpretation, etc. And we would use satellites that would interpret uh, foliage through infrared bands. It would pick up infrared bands of light, and you could use it for very scientific things like, uh, hey, we want to see if there's like disease impacting vegetation in a forest. Well, infrared uh, is really reactive to vegetation. So uh, your plants, your trees, the leaves of those trees reflect infrared light back to the sensor of the satellite's camera or whatever camera you have. And so you can see uh, vegetation now in color infrared, the way that they've calibrated it, typically vegetation ends up looking red. And so uh, if for some reason that vegetation starts looking pink or turning yellowish or whatever, that probably means that there's a disease infecting the vegetation. And so it was, it was specifically invented for scientific purposes, but we artists look at things and go, well, that looks different. I want to mess with it. And what it does, it, you might be thinking, well, Kevin, if it's invisible light, how can you see it? It does what's called assigning a false color. So if you've seen the movie Predator, right, uh, you see heat vision, thermal vision, and the hotter something gets, it goes from like uh, blue to green to yellow to orange to red, right? Well, when you look at something that's hot, you don't see it that way. You have to put some, some sort of a filter in place that interprets bands uh, and, and, and values in specific ways and then assigns a false color to it. Well, they figured out how to do it back in the day with film, and now they do it uh, with digital cameras, okay? And artists look at it and go, well, I can come up with some really cool, beautiful, artistic renderings using these false colors. And so that's how artistic people, uh, the artistic community adopted infrared photography, okay? And so going back to it, I was talking about how you've got the different filters. And so when I want something to be more colorful, I will shoot on my 590 nanometer filter. Now, what, when you look at a finished infrared picture, when somebody looks at uh, somebody presents their finished infrared shot, you go, wow, that looks gorgeous. And then you go and you get your, your camera converted and you go and you take pictures with it. And you're like, that doesn't look like this finished product. And that's because infrared requires uh, editing. It's, it's, it's very much a post-processing type of thing. So what happens is when you take a picture in infrared, it just looks like kind of a pinkish color across the board. And you're like, why is my camera uh, giving me this weird rendering? And the reason why it has to do with your white balance. So your cameras, when you're in auto white balance or you're in daylight or you're in tungsten or whatever your white balance is, it's trying to set the color white 
based off of you looking at visible light, right? Everything that they do with cameras, the way they calibrate cameras, the way that they get everything looking great in cameras is all based on a world in which you're taking pictures of visible light, Roy G. Biv, right? And so uh, that's why your white balance is not calibrated correctly when you take a picture in infrared. It's just going to look terrible. So how do you kind of see a finished product? Well, the, the true answer is, is out of the box, you can't see what the final product's gonna be. And for some of you, that may frustrate you, but you can get kind of close. So for instance, if you see somebody take a picture with a 720 nanometer filter, and you see like trees and a blue sky, the blue is super deep. It almost looks like like the, the, the north with the White Walkers in Game of Thrones. If you look at that, it's like an icicle, like all the, all the vegetation looks like uh, it, it's covered in snow, but it's just sure, it just renders white. And when you shoot at 720 nanometers, it has this gorgeous look. Well, w when you go shoot in 720 nanometers at the camera, it doesn't look like that. And even with a custom white balance, the sky will end up looking more of like an amberish color. You have to do a process in post-production where you flip the red and the blue color channels. And when you do that, you will get the results that you desire. Coming up, I'll talk to you about how to get those results. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. All right, so you have yourself a, a picture that you've composed, you've taken it, you love the way everything turned out, everything's sharp, but you really don't know where to start in post-production. First and foremost, no matter what raw processor you're using, whether it's Lightroom, whether it's Capture One, the first thing you have to do is get your white balance set. Now, eventually you'll figure out to use a custom white balance in your converted camera. But if you just want to find a good starting point of white balance, you just need to find something that's middle gray. So typically you'll look at the clouds, you look at leaves, or if you're taking pictures of industrial type stuff, I tend to just look for middle gray and concrete. And I use my eyedropper tool and my white balance, I hit that, and then it converts. Now in a 720 nanometer, it's going to kind of look, like I said, you're going to have kind of an amberish sky, your vegetation is going to be kind of a blueberry color, uh, desaturated blue, kind of grayish color. And by the way, I should also point out that when you shoot in 720, if you shoot people, their skin, uh, they will look a little freaky because it penetrates into the skin and you can see their veins, especially on their chest. And so that's something you want to be mindful of. Uh, features on the face don't uh, look correct, but you also have to keep in mind you're, you're reflecting back infrared light. You're not reflecting back visible light. So if things aren't going to quite look the same, you're, you're just, you're just capturing infrared at this point, right? Uh, in 590, it's going to look a little more realistic. I find that uh, skin tones end up looking kind of a yellowish pink. Uh, but anyway, that's your starting point. You hit your middle gray with your eyedropper tool. And then what you do is you export it out of your raw editor into Photoshop. And then you open up your color channel mixer and you flip your red and blue color channels. I'll leave a link in the description of this pod to a guy named Rob Shea, who, by the way, I'm doing this episode based off of my experiences with infrared. But if you like get super into the weeds and you find yourself in a YouTube rabbit hole, you're going to stumble upon this guy, Rob Shea. He actually has a book uh, on it. And so definitely check him out if you really want to do a deep dive. But uh, once you flip those color channels, there's no rules. You can take the red channel and do what you want. You can make the vegetation look pink. You can make the vegetation look green. You can make the vegetation look red. There's no right or wrong answer. 
uh, because it's art. But that's pretty much what you do. And I will, I'll, I'll send you over to, like I said, I'll send you over to his, his uh, channel. And then you from there can make a determination as to what direction you want to take it. But the one thing I do recommend, and he has this uh, available for free, is Photoshop Actions. If you want to get a workflow going fast with infrared, you want Photoshop Actions. So that's super important. Uh, you can just hit the play button in Photoshop and it'll automate a bunch of the editing for you, uh, doing t you know benign tasks that you have to do all the time. So definitely do that. Another thing I want to talk about is lenses. So if you don't know, uh, a lot of lenses aren't good for infrared. Back in the day, infrared was actually a uh, accepted artistic discipline. And so manufacturers would actually test out lenses with infrared film. They would make sure it was tested out with infrared film. And they actually, uh, on, on vintage lenses, you actually see a red dot on there. And that red dot indicates that that, that, that lens was actually uh, tested for infrared and used for infrared. And it's actually kind of a little smart indicator if you buy old vintage lenses that this is going to work for infrared. It's more of a crapshoot with modern lenses because they're not tested for infrared. Okay. And by the way, we're going to get into ultraviolet later in this episode, but I want to just start off talking about infrared. We're going to swing the pendulum over to the other side of the spectrum. Now, modern lenses is more of a crapshoot. So, uh, Kalari vision and, uh, Rob Shea have a lens compatibility chart on their websites. Uh, they can let you know that like, Hey, this lens is perfect for infrared. Uh, this lens is only good up to say like F 5.6 or F eight. Now, the reason why that is a, is a thing is because there's what's called hot spots, and you'll start taking a picture of something and you'll go back into post-production and look at it and go, why is there this weird orangish glow in the middle of my, my frame? And that's, what's called a hot spot. And because they don't test out lenses, modern lenses or make modern lenses for, infrared, it's literally chance that it's going to look good. And so if you get modern lenses, you're, you know, you want to make sure that you look at a lens compatibility chart for your camera system that you're getting converted and, and, and you're good to go up. Uh, speaking of conversions, I want to talk to you about costs. So I took a Fuji X-T20 and that X-T20, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good camera. It's a 2017 camera, 20, 24 megapixels, somewhere in there. And it's good. It, it renders well. And, you know, I went ahead and bought that camera for, you know, three, four hundred dollars. And then it cost me another three or four hundred dollars to get it converted. And then it cost me another three or four hundred dollars to get all the filters. So, you know, it's a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars to go all in, depending on what you get. And then, of course, if you go on the high end, you want to go get like a medium format Fuji GFX. You're going to probably spend like six thousand dollars on a, on a, on that whole thing. So it just depends on how much you want to get into it. I, I made the determination that I'm not going to be selling super large fine art prints. And so I went ahead and opted for a smaller megapixel camera, something, you know, tiny. And so I went with the X-T20 route and, you know, you send it off and like a month later, you get your, you get your camera back. They've removed the filter. They send it with the filters that you buy on top of the conversion service and you're good to go. And so that's what I ended up doing. Um, uh, one other uh, thing I want to talk about though, with the lenses, going back to the lenses is you know, the reason why you want to look into vintage lenses is because they tend to give you uh, amazing results from the widest to the darkest apertures. So keep that in mind. Uh, also, I think I read somewhere that your sharpness shifts a little bit. So a lot of times the lens, your sharpest point in a lens would be like F8. 
Well, with an, when you convert to full spectrum, that changes because diffraction kicks in a little earlier. So if your sharpest point is F8, it may end up actually going to F5.6. And if let's say you start having diffraction kick in at like F16 with a converted camera, when you attach a lens to it, that may go to like F11. So there's a shift there as well as to where your sharpest and point is and where the diffraction kicks in. And so that's something that you definitely want to keep in mind uh, if you're if you're going out and looking for lenses. Um, speaking of converting, so you may be like, well, I don't want to send my camera off to convert it because I don't want to spend that extra money, but there's advantages to it. So uh, you can, by the way, with the camera that you own, check to see if it could be uh, infrared. And the way you do that is you attach one of your lenses uh, that you already own. And then you go grab yourself a, a TV remote and you take the TV remote and you just hit buttons and point it at the camera. And if you look at the camera and you see a flicker go off, that means that your camera can see infrared because you know, your, your TV remotes, they, they give off infrared. That's how they communicate. And so if you see a light light up through your camera, that means that your camera can see infrared. And now you're probably like getting super excited, but there's a drawback. There's a caveat. Unless you are a landscape photographer who is shooting on a tripod and wants to do 60 second exposures, super long exposures, you, uh, that's, that's the, the handicap you're going to run into by just taking a normal camera and putting infrared on it. Because what, what you do in that situation is you go buy a front filter for your lens. So let's say your lens has a 77 millimeter filter thread size. You can go buy a, you know, 590, 550, 720 nanometer infrared uh, filter and put it on the end of your lens. The drawback, of course, is that you have to have super long 60-second exposures. You can't handhold infrared. The reason why a conversion service is better is because when they take the hot mirror filter off at the sensor itself, you can go handheld. Like, you can go shoot one four-thousandth of a second. It's not a big deal. It's just like taking regular pictures in the visible spectrum, uh, handholding, walking around. And so that's the advantage of the conversion service is you can use the camera regularly, whereas with a non-converted camera using front filters, you have to use tripods, you have to do long exposures. Now, some of you landscape photographers listening to this are like, that's my bread and butter, I do long exposures, I'm ready to rock. In that case, save some money, go buy a $200 filter, call it a day, but you still have to do that test with the remote because not all cameras see infrared very well. And not all cameras are gonna see infrared uh, you know, at the at the same clip. Now, the you know, do that do that test, uh, but not all cameras are going to see as deeply. So it could vary. Your results could vary. It may see you know five fifty, five ninety well, but not seven twenty or in the eight hundred range very well. So keep that in mind. All right. Hey, this is Vanessa Joy, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Something that I do want to correct. I, I I brushed over and said that. Oh yeah, if you see a red dot on a lens that means that it's good for infrared, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Sometimes it's a red dot and sometimes there's an R. There's also focus shift that occurs. And so that red dot is actually a infrared focus mark. It indicates how far you need to rotate the focus ring to achieve correct focus of infrared light. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And if you're using a newer lens, they don't have that on there. So you're going to have to kind of learn where that focus point is. But the chances are, if you're this into the weeds on infrared, you'll probably go out of your way to learn that very easy task. So now let's talk about how I like to shoot infrared and, and what I like each band for. So 
I have three filters. I only have a 590, a 720, and then I have a hot mirror filter. So I first want to talk about the hot mirror filter. I have that Fuji X-T20. I told you at the beginning of this episode that the hot mirror filter is the thing that they remove that is installed by your manufacturer. Well, you can get that put back on. And so I bought a hot mirror filter so I can take my Fuji X-T20 and just shoot normal pictures with it. Because when you put the hot mirror filter on, it sucks out that infrared and ultraviolet again and then turns your camera into quote unquote a normal camera. And why that's cool is it means that if I go on vacation with my family, I can take my Fuji X-T20 and my small little Fuji lenses as my vacation camera, I can put the hot mirror filter on it and I can just go take normal pictures. And then, uh, if I want to, I'm like, well, hey, I'm at Disney World or whatever, and I want to take a picture of Space Mountain and have all the vegetation look kind of crazy, I can just take my hot mirror filter off, and then I can put like a 590 filter on it. And now, uh, after I take it through my post-production and all that, all my vegetation looks super, you know, uh, red or pink or whatever I want it to look like, and the colors are popping and everything like that. So that is one of the cool things about having a hot mirror filter in addition to having your infrared filters. Um, I also have another filter I want to talk about, which is an aerochrome filter. So aerochrome was a specific film stock that had a beautiful look to it. Uh, it was originally used in aerial photography, hence the name aerochrome. I believe that's what it means. And, and so, and I think that's actually what I, sh I used to shoot, uh, overhead vegetation in college uh, when I was in a Cessna taking pictures for my major, I'm pretty sure we used aerochrome. And so aerochrome has a gorgeous look. And uh, Kalari Vision, which is the company that did my conversion service, they have a specific filter that uh, they only make it for the front of the lens. They don't make it as a drop-in filter. And so I had to settle on a 77 millimeter and I, you know, I have to use the step rings in order to get it to fit on my smaller lenses. But Aerochrome has a gorgeous look. And one of the things I love about Aerochrome is there's really not a lot of post-production. It's a little heavy on the saturation, but what's cool about it is I don't really have to do color flipping. Apparently they figured out a way to do it inside the filter itself. And so you don't have to have anything uh, right in front of your sensor. You can just put your lens on and then you know, you put your aerochrome filter on and you can get some fantastic results with that. I will leave uh, some aerochrome examples in the description of this podcast, but aerochrome is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, a very beautiful artistic rendering of infrared. Uh, but I use the 590 nanometer uh, when I want that vegetation to pop, when I want it to be more colorful because it's letting in more visible light in addition to introducing some infrared. Uh, when I shoot more architectural type stuff, I'm doing more street photography. Uh, maybe I want my subjects to look a little freakier. If I'm shooting a person, I want the veins to pop out. I'll use my 720 for that. Also, if you're going for that White Walker, uh, you know, wall look of uh, Game of Thrones where you want to make it look like there's just ice all over the grass and make it look like there's, you know, ice in all the, the uh, leaves of the trees and have a deep blue sky. 720 is beautiful for that. And of course, you can take all of this and throw it into monochrome as well. I don't do a lot of monochrome infrared, which is interesting because when I shot infrared in college, I absolutely did monochrome. Uh, but this new world of color is just so amazing to me because I really couldn't afford color infrared film when I was in college. I, I just haven't gotten that, uh, that out of my system yet. And I just keep shooting in the color side of things. But 
uh, you know, it's definitely a post-production uh, outside of the aerochrome. It's definitely a post-production thing. And so if you're the type of person who wants to get it right at the camera, you do want to look into specialty filters like aerochrome. And uh, another commentary I do want to make on the drop-in filters, there the advantage of the drop-in filter is that you just drop it in, you put your lenses in, and you don't have to worry about front filters, which is great. The disadvantage to it is that there are occasional lenses that won't fit in your camera body with the drop-in filter. So I have a Fuji 23mm 1.4, which is one of my favorite lenses in the world. It doesn't fit. And so the only way I can get it to fit, there's like a, a weather sealing gasket type thing that has screws on it that you can take out and then it exposes the back part of the lens, the back element, and it gets super, super close to the filter. And I've decided that I'm just gonna use that lens for aerochrome because I have a 30 millimeter. It's only three millimeters off from Sigma and it works just fine. And so I drop it in. Uh, I, I use that with the drop-in filters, the Sigma 30 millimeter, despite the fact that the 23 is like one of my favorite storytelling lenses that I have. And so that's just something to keep in mind that not all lenses work with the drop-in filters, despite the fact that it's very few that don't. You may run into that. Obviously the front filters work just fine, but then you have to use the step filters and the step filters suck, or you have to buy a bunch of different size filters. And those filters are $200. Some of them are $300. We'll get into some of those here in a bit. So it can get super costly, so you want the drop-in filters for sure. Um, now, I've only tested this on Fuji X-Mount. I haven't tested it on Canon. I am tempted to buy a Canon EOS R that has been converted to infrared because it's like a 30 plus 32 megapixel, uh, somewhere in there, uh, camera. And the Canon RF lenses, of course, are gorgeous. And I have to, of course, see if they all fit with the drop-in filters. That's that's another thing to consider is do they fit with the drop-in filters? Because some of those Canon lenses have 95 millimeter filter threads. And I'm not going to go out and I don't even know if Kalari Vision makes 99 millimeter filters. I'm sorry, 95 millimeter filters for a uh, 28 to 70 F2 or something like that. Uh, another thing to keep in mind about the lenses, though, is that... As you do deeper infrared, that's where you find the hotspots more. So if you are a, a, if you favor the 550, 590 look, you're going to run into hotspots less than if you have a 720 or higher uh, thing going on. So that's something to keep in mind. But using uh, deeper infrared is where you'll run into the hotspots. So hopefully this gives you kind of a summary of the infrared side of things. Now, coming up, let's talk about ultraviolet. Hi, this is Rachel Hill, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Okay, so we talked about infrared and everything that encompasses that, the types of lenses you want to look into, whether or not you want to do rear drop-in filters or front filters, uh, the process of sending your camera off. But let's talk about ultraviolet because that's the other side of the spectrum. So what is ultraviolet? Ultraviolet is above violet. It's the higher frequencies. Uh, it's been used in the past, mainly for forensics photography, uh, which is always funny to explain when you're doing a passion project because I wanted to do a project where I reallocated uh, ultraviolet for beauty and portraiture. And so it's kind of interesting to explain to somebody that, oh yeah, this is a type of photography that they use to like see bruises on people and people who get bludgeoned to death. They look for blunt force trauma. It's pretty pretty gross. But you can reallocate it for really good purposes, in my opinion. And you can do some really gorgeous things with skin. Now, something I do want to get out of the way is that ultraviolet is much more challenging to shoot than infrared. Uh, you need the sun. Yes, bronze color does make ultraviolet lights, 
But they're like $37,000 when you get the power packs and the ultraviolet heads and all that. So for most people, that's not feasible. Uh, you can get ultraviolet like wands that you can buy for cheap and they will uh, transmit some ultraviolet. But I'm about to talk to you about why they aren't very effective because the, the filter that you need to buy to put on the front of your lens. And so first and foremost, I only could afford to buy one filter. So they didn't have the 77 millimeter in stock, Kalari. So I went ahead and bought the 67 millimeter, which for Fuji is an okay gamble to take because Fuji doesn't make a ton of lenses that go over 67 millimeters. However, if you're a Canon user, a Nikon user, you shoot Fuji GFX, almost all of those lenses are gonna be larger than that. So you're gonna need to get something like a 77 millimeter. And as far as I know, they don't make anything beyond that. I don't even know if they make an 82, I'd have to double check on that, but they definitely don't make a 90, 95 millimeter filter thread, like something like a 28 to 70 from Canon uses. And so your options are a little more limited as far as uh, what you're gonna do. As far as I know, they don't make a drop-in rear filter. I wish they did. That would be amazing. And I hope that Kalari gets on that. But uh, as far as I know, it was still in development when I bought mine. Uh, but if they ever do make a rear drop-in filter, I'm definitely going to buy it. But also keep in mind that while the filters for infrared tend to vary between like $150 and $200, it's like $300 plus to get the filters for ultraviolet. Uh, the bandpass filter is more expensive to make. Uh, but there's really great valid reasons to shoot it. Uh, but I want to finish first talking about the disadvantages of ultraviolet. So another disadvantage to ultraviolet is it's very slow. The filter is very slow. And so you're going to have to bump your ISO up to roughly ISO 800. And you're going to have to be at like 1.4, anywhere from 1.4 to 2.8, depending on the sun. So you have to shoot at a shallow depth of field. And then you also have to shoot uh, at a slow shutter speed. So typically between 1 15th and 1 60th of a second. Okay. So, uh, one of the cool things about ultraviolet is it penetrates the skin and pulls freckles out. It also pulls pimples out by the way that are coming in. So you may have to do a little bit of post-production work, but it makes skin natural skin look absolutely gorgeous. And so I'm doing a passion project where I'm having a bunch of models, not wear any makeup. And I'll post some of the, um, I'll post some of the results uh, in this uh, podcast. I call it a souls in the ultraviolet. Uh, that's just what I'm calling it. And I'm, I'm, you know, finding models that I think would photograph well in ultraviolet. And I'm doing uh, very close portraits of them with no makeup on at all. Uh, show, you know, pulling out their freckles. And that's the nice thing is you, you know, you know your body better than anybody else. So, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror every morning with no makeup on. What's cool about the project that I'm doing is I take pictures of men and women who have never seen themselves look like this before because it's pulling out freckles they didn't even know existed. And that's one of the cool things about ultraviolet. Now, the drawback, of course, is that I have to tell them like, hey, we have to find a pose and you have to stay still. So you can't have somebody flow posing, you know, like you normally would uh, if you're taking pictures of models in a studio or whatever and they're, they're changing poses every five seconds. They have to stand very still and you have to be very still with your hands. And so uh, that's how I'm having to attack it. I'm typically shooting at ISO 800, F1.4, which I'm not a fan of. I wish I could shoot at like F4 so I could get a little bit more of them in focus for these headshots, but I'm just having to stand back and crop. That is one of the disadvantages I'm finding to a smaller megapixel camera is I'm having to crop a little bit to mess up my depth of field. And so that is an issue unto itself. Now, 
Uh, if you are a landscape photographer, I don't really see a lot of benefits of shooting in ultraviolet, but obviously you can put something on a tripod. You can uh, put a two second timer on it. And I may, I may still end up doing the two second timer thing with portraits uh, sometimes because I, you know, your hit rate is pretty shitty. I've found that I would, I probably hit a third to half my shots perfectly. And then the rest of them are out of focus, either because the model moved, my hand moved, or because I'm shooting at such a shallow depth of field, my hand or the model shifted and they're out of they're out of uh, focus in terms of depth of field, not blur. So, or sometimes it's both. Sometimes you miss your depth of field and there's movement and it's blurry. So your chances for uh, out of focus uh, shots goes up. Now, obviously, if you're shooting on medium format or something like that, you can bump that ISO up super high. I'm using a 2017 camera. If I continue to pursue using uh, infrared and ultraviolet, which I'm kind of trending in that direction, I may very well go the route of getting a nice Canon camera converter because I have so many of the RF lenses. That's probably my next bet. I don't have the budget to do Fuji GFX at this time, but I do have a GFX 100S already. And so if I down the line, maybe get a GFX 100 uh, Mark II, I may keep my 100S and get that converted to, to full spectrum. But man, then you're talking about, you know, a thousand dollar investment and all the, um, all the filters and all that. But, but let's talk about lenses real quick. So you pretty much have to use vintage lenses. And the reason why, uh, all of you who shoot photography, you have UV filters, right? You, you're out there trying to get UV filters to block UV lights. Well, a lot of the modern lenses actually have UV protection built into them. And that's great if you want to keep ghosting and artifacts and stuff like that out of interfering with your visible light. The problem is, is you're trying to reach light that we don't really see very well, which is ultraviolet. So if you have an ultraviolet filter on a lens, naturally, it's gonna filter out what you're trying to get to with a full spectrum camera, which is you're trying to get ultraviolet light. So you don't really wanna use modern lenses because they're not gonna capture much UV light at all. You really need to go look at old vintage lenses like Minolta, Helios, stuff like that. They capture ultraviolet much better. Uh, and of course, you can go to those aforementioned charts to see if there are some recommended lenses or just use Google and type in good lenses for ultraviolet photography. I personally use Minolta lenses, which converts to pretty much any major camera system. Uh, and so that's what I would recommend starting with. Obviously, they're gonna be vintage lenses, so they're gonna be manual focus and you have to shoot at a shallow depth of field, and that, of course, is one of the disadvantages to ultraviolet. Hi, I'm Jordan Groby, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. So when it comes to editing ultraviolet, when you take shots in ultraviolet in color, they're gonna look super purple to pink with a slight hint of blue, because you're gonna be on that part of the spectrum. Uh, more often than not, that's not what you want your final result to look like. And so when you go in and you get your white balance set, once again, you find a nice neutral place, it tends to look more uh, monochrome. And sometimes you might see a bit of uh, like a light bluish violet uh, look in certain things. But in general, most people will edit in monochrome uh, for ultraviolet, or it looks like monochrome because it's super muted because you're just right up there in uh, this ultraviolet spectrum and you're not getting any other colors. And so that's something to keep in mind is kind of what it looks like. And of course, uh, I'll leave a link to my souls in the ultraviolet uh, in the description of this podcast so you can get a better idea of what ultraviolet looks like when edited. 
But there's one final important thing I wanna to talk to you about with ultraviolet, and that is the use of sunscreen. So I've used sunscreen artistically and you know painted people's faces and you know you put sunscreen on you don't really think much of it you blend it in right and then you just your skin looks a little greasy but you still see the color of your skin well that's not how you look in ultraviolet and something that you need to take into consideration so you don't get in a shitload of trouble is that if you take somebody and you put sunscreen on their face and then you look at them in ultraviolet they're going to look like they have black face Okay, because if you think about the purpose of sunscreen, the whole point of sunscreen is to take away ultraviolet light. Well, that's precisely what it does. And so, you know, you may have a model who in the morning wakes up and puts moisturizer on their face that has some SPF in it, or maybe they put lip balm on that has SPF in it, or they just cover their face in sunscreen. That's going to show up in ultraviolet because it's blocking out ultraviolet light. That's what it was designed to do. So if you don't want to get canceled on accident by making your, your, your model look like they have black face, don't put shit on the face. Like I always tell the model, do not wear anything on your face at all anything at all. Don't do it. Uh, one last note about uh, shooting in ultraviolet. One of the things I think that's cool about it is shadows are black, and I mean super deep black. And so everything looks a little, little different. It's an artistic thing. I just love the way it looks. I lied. One last thing is uh, if you take a picture of somebody who's Caucasian, they have very light skin. If they're in the shade, They'll actually look kind of a little more ethnic. Uh, I guess that would be the right word. They'll look like they have much uh, darker skin than they actually do, but it'll look natural. It won't look like the blackface thing I was talking about with the uh, with the, the sunscreen, but that's also something to keep in mind is that if you're taking a picture of somebody, let them know that, hey, your skin isn't going to look normal because it's not reflecting back visible light. It's reflecting back ultraviolet transmission. And if you're in the shade, there's not much to transmit, so their skin is going to look dark. That does it for today's episode. I thank each and every one of you for listening today. If you made it this far, then you must be very interested in full spectrum infrared or ultraviolet cameras. And uh, I thank you very much uh, for some of you who are like, hey, that's a little too technical for me. Don't worry, Brandon will be back soon. We'll be doing episodes together. Follow us at f11pod.com. Uh, give us a five-star rating on both Spotify and Apple if you could. It helps increase our visibility. I want to thank today's sponsor, Cheetah Stand. And until next time, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.